Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Patrick Coletti. He's the founder of NetHealth and the author of the book, ReFounder. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you are doing with uh, NetHealth and, and the book are very innovative and cool, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sounds great. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I, I spent the first few years in an area called Point Breeze uh, and then moved to Oakmont. So you could have found me on the streets of either of those places, uh, skateboarding, playing some soccer, those kind of things. Very cool. So you uh, you went to college. What did you take and why? Yeah, so I, I got two degrees in school and I, and I knew I wanted to be in business and I wanted to study entrepreneurship, but the school didn't didn't offer that as a as a course. So I studied business with marketing, but I also got a degree in philosophy. Interesting. Was like what made you passionate about business growing up? Was there like a defining moment or or something that got you passionate about it? You know, I think from an early age, you know, I had a paper route. I was um, you know, the first to step up to you know, shovel snow and, and do yard work for neighbors and things like that. So I, I think I had that gene, so to speak. And um, I had a couple of good role models early on as well. And, and I, I did know from a from a young age that I wanted to run my own company. Oh, very cool. So you get out of school, walk us through your career up until coming up with the idea and founding NetHealth. Yeah, excellent. So the you know my first job out of school, I worked for a private equity backed uh, media publishing company, and we were focused on uh, the the narrow market related to law firms and legal publishing and magazines and media and, and what's presently law.com. And it was great. It was a great experience to figure out how to take something that was, uh, in print and turn it into a, a media platform that's that's largely digital. So, and that sounded probably a lot sexier than it actually was. But that was my first gig out of school. Learned a lot, and uh, and then shortly thereafter, I actually joined a dot com startup, um, which became NetHealth. Very cool. So, walk us through the early days of NetHealth and how and what it's become today, because. It's definitely not a startup anymore. You guys have been at it over two decades now, which is impressive for for any business, never mind a, a startup. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a little shy of a thousand people today, so it qualifies yeah. probably for a medium size uh, business. And but you know, going back to the earliest days, you know, th there really were three uh, pre-founders, I guess is the way to think about it. And and. Okay. They were the ones that had a, the idea. They were there was a doctor, a lawyer, and a computer science student, and uh, so they and they hired a, a team. And about a year and a half after being hired, I got a call from the newly appointed chairman who said, "Everybody's laid off. Um, we've decided that the two of you can stay if you're willing to cut your salary in half 
and we'll we'll give you that half salary for 90 days. And so wow. what we really were handed were, you know, some ideas and, and not that any of the ideas were bad, but some were better than others. And so it was in that moment that we, we had to pivot and had to create a focus and uh, pick a new future. Wow. So what made you decide to take that shot and continue for the 90 days at lesser pay? Yeah, I mean, part of it was candidly fear, I'm sure, you know, so I'm, I'm mid 20s. I've been married for three months. Wow. You know, I'm probably petrified of losing my job and my income at that time. This was right around uh, 9-11. So it's oh, literally wow. okay. the weekend of 9-11 is when we got the phone call, you know, so the 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 nation is in disarray. The economy is getting ready to be in disarray. And so there was definitely a lot of fear, you know, in the system. But by the same token, we had just gotten a glimpse of, of some of the ways that you could engage patients better with technology. And we knew there was a, a there there. We didn't know specifically which there it was, but we had an inkling that, that there was something possible. So I think it was the combination of fear, you know, a desire to make a difference, particularly in healthcare with uh, technology you know, combining those things. And, and it gave us enough to just make the decision to go one more day, you know, and then another week and so on and so forth. But it certainly wasn't a bright light moment. Interesting. Okay. So what did you eventually launch with and how has that evolved over the last couple of decades into what NetHealth is today? Yeah, so the first product area we really got interested in and, and the problem we became intrigued with has to do with chronic wound care. Okay. So there are uh, well over 100 million people just in this area um, of, of North America that have diabetes, and about 20% of them are going to develop this lower extremity wound. And this was something I, I just had no experience with. Um, and un, unlike you and me, when that person develops that lower extremity wound, their body is not going to heal the wound the same way that ours would. And instead, the wound's going to get larger. And if it goes untreated or, or receives the wrong kind of care, they're going to receive an amputation. So this wow. year, 70,000 people uh, will receive an amputation because of a lower extremity wound. And it's avoidable. And so, you know, as we started to learn some of these statistics and, you know, today, as we've learned that they disproportionately affect people of color, we got interested in creating a solution. And so we had a web-based software system that basically allowed clinicians to measure, track, uh, share digital images, and show velocity of wound healing by wound type, uh, and to do it all in a HIPAA-compliant way with benchmarking. And that was the system. It was pretty, pretty simple back then and obviously became more complex as we found out what the market really needed. But that was the, um, that was the idea we, we pivoted towards. Uh, and today um, we provide all kinds of software systems in a, in a wide variety of markets, including physical therapy, occupational health, speech therapy, and a few others too. Very cool. No, that's, that's awesome. So I'm curious then... Because obviously in the health space, there's so many things at play and regulations and politics and a, a bunch of things. How have you guys pushed the technology envelope, stayed relevant, well being compliant around 
all the kind of red tape and stuff that just comes with the space that you guys are playing in? It's a great question. And, you know, sometimes uh, compliance and government regulation really drive, um, can drive innovation. Sometimes they really slow it down. You know, sure. and in our in our situation, this was right around the time that uh, the Health Information Portability Act um, was was approved, and, and you know we call that HIPAA. And so HIPAA created a a movement that really took patient uh, confidentiality seriously. And so we were able to make sure everything we did was HIPAA compliant, and you know, kind of get on the right side of of history on that one. There's been so many others as well, and and again, some of them uh, have been laborious and, and and maybe didn't feel as as welcome as HIPAA, uh, and and others have been a boon to the industry. And so it's a combination of making sure you're staying ahead of the curve with all regulatory, and that's just table stakes, right? And that's right. true in fintech and health tech and you know virtually every other market that that's well regulated. And so if you can stay ahead of the curve, that's good. But then the question you ask really is, how do you innovate and how do you stay innovative? And it's hard for companies of all sizes to, to keep their eye on the ball of innovation and, and candidly being refounders in businesses while they're trying to just keep pace with regulations. You know, so for us, it required creativity. Uh, it required external stimulation. You know, we had a we had a board of advisors um, that we picked early on in the business, and these were people who were expert in the field of healthcare and in the field of chronic wound care. And we relied on them, and we got ideas. And you know, we we tried to stay creative and fresh in terms of how frequently we thought about innovation and what was coming next. And applying what's going on in the world to healthcare because healthcare uh, historically has been 15 to 30 years behind other consumer markets in terms of applicability of technology user friendliness yeah no i yeah i don't think anybody would argue with that i i think in a lot of ways yeah you're right it's it's pretty behind in, in some things i think it's gotten a lot better in the last few years just based on my own kind of personal experience and just seeing the types of stuff that's happening but I think you're you're right. So I, I'm curious. Um, you you wrote a book that's coming out uh, soon called Refounder. What made you decide to write a book, and what made you call it Refounder? And and what's the book about? Thanks. Yeah the the reason I wrote the book was you know was two part. First was. I actually met people who had written books, and I realized this was a this was a doable thing. Uh, yep. And so, once again, I, I I had access to people who had done it and recognized that it really was uh, it was something that was achievable. And the second part was, you know, I, I just I really heard from so many friends and family members about their complaints, the, the place they worked, um, the bad culture. Um, and it was really, it came out of the, you know, this notion that I, I was already speaking a decent amount on the net health story and how we took something that was really broken and, and created something better. And I recognize that there's a, there's a pattern in here that other refounders are doing. And so, you know, in researching it and giving it some thought, I found that there's lots of other refounders all around and they just needed a name. And so we, we interviewed some really interesting people. We hope to share their story as well. And I would say it was, it was through that process of wanting to encourage and give a little bit of a playbook that I said, let's do it. Very cool. So, 
What's the book about? And and then I want to dive into some of the topics that you cover into the book in the book. Yeah. So in the book, Refounder, I talk about how this uh, growing group of people are taking things that are broken and, and making them better. And, and I give examples in business and, and business is the easiest and, and most credible initial story that, that I have. Um, but I also shine a light on areas that need refounders. And so I talk about education. I talk about healthcare. Um, we talk about the process of innovation. Uh, we talk about how refounders need to keep refounding and this notion that uh, products obsolesce. I mean, you know that. And, and so companies do as well. And so unless you're in the business of being a refounder, you know, that place you work now, that product line, uh, that culture, it's going to need a renewal at some point soon. And so this is really, a again, a playbook and a wake-up call for people about how to do that. Interesting. So you mentioned, obviously, education and healthcare and, and a couple other spaces. What's your thoughts on if if I don't work in either one of those spaces, what's your thoughts around trying to found a company in an industry that you're not familiar with? There's lots of precedents where that can be helpful. Um, one of the interviews in the book is with Dr. Chris Howard, who talks about this this idea of it's about monkey bars, not a corporate ladder. And so the idea is that some of the greatest leaders swing from one experience to the other, and they take what they've learned in that experience and apply it to a new set of problems. Now, juxtapose that with the corporate ladder, where there's this incremental growth that someday leads to a, a higher job. So in my own experience, I didn't know anything about uh, chronic wound care, and I really didn't know a lot about healthcare. And here we are, um, a much larger organization that's, you know, helping 200,000 or more clinicians help heal 3 million people a year. So, wow. you know, our story is a, is a good example. And I'd say it's easy for me to imagine why people should get interested in problems outside of their, you know, initial domain. Sure. No, I, I'm glad you said that because I think sometimes if you're in – you're stuck in an industry and I've done this myself. You're just like, well, that can't be done. Like, that's just not how it is. And then you have to like really catch yourself sometimes and say like, well, no, no, no. Is that actually the case though? Just because something hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. Just nobody's thought of it to do it in that industry. And I find sometimes like if you bring in an outside perspective from a different industry or somebody that maybe is new to the industry, they're just like, they, they can almost pointed out on like their first day, like, why do we do that? That's really stupid. We should do it like this. And to everybody else are like, oh yeah, like we never thought of it like that. Right. And I get that's a really bad, like simple example, but sometimes you, I think I just don't want to discourage people and kind of break down that myth that you don't have to have a ton of experience in an industry to start something in that industry. Or, or to make a difference in the industry, right? Sure. Or participate in something that somebody's already doing. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's why a lot of tech companies these days are hiring anthropologists and philosophers and artists to really look at problems in a different way. Sure. No, totally. That's, that's interesting. So what's your thoughts on actually kind of coming up with a problem or just trying to like, because obviously 
as we're just doing our jobs or, or whatever, you see problems that you could potentially fix. Or you're like, I have an idea to fix that. But how do you figure out kind of what your first problem could be and actually make that leap from maybe starting to build a company in that, whether it's part-time, full-time, some kind of combination of something like that? Yeah, so problems abound, you know, and, and you reference that. And there's problems everywhere. And, and so it's one of the rubrics a, a person can use is to combine, you know, what are their natural giftings? Like what are their actual strengths, the things that they – they are in fact good at, their friends would say they're good at, and they have a track record of being good at. Combining that with their passions and, you know, your passions, you don't have to be good at your passions. You just have to be passionate about them. Um, And then applying this idea of your brokenness for the world. And so, you know, when you can combine those three things, you can, you can become a, a real superpower. And so onto the brokenness for the world thing, the best companies today have defined their just cause. You know, they've thought about what is the great purpose that we seek to, uh, you know, that we live for. And, and so if you can combine those things, right, you've got a great purpose, a brokenness for the world in an area you really want to fix, and you're combining your strengths and your passion, you're going to have a pretty co- powerful combination there. Now, that being said, not everybody wants to start a business or even a not-for-profit. And so there's a lot of room in the places that you, you know, live, work, and play today to make those same changes. Interesting. Uh, But then how do you, if you're not the type of person to maybe go off and start your own company, potentially going to your manager or the CEO or whoever and pitching maybe a, not necessarily a pivot, but like a, a new product or new angle, sometimes that can be greeted with, you know, like, awesome, let's really look into this. And other times it can kind of be shut down pretty quick. How do you manage or actually potentially get that at least considered at a company if you don't want to maybe potentially pursue that on your, your own? Yeah, there's there's a, there's absolutely a way, right? And and part of it, you know, has to do with the way that you're perceived and the way you communicate, right? So, in the uh, in the book, I talk about an intern that we had once, and this was maybe ten years ago. And you know, we liked this intern; we thought they were great. They had been there for nine months. We had just hired them on full time, and they had credibility because they they volunteered, they worked hard, they were earnest. And but one night. We got a late night email uh, from this fellow named Billy. And, you know, it was, it was like two in the morning. So the next morning I, I wake up, I'm looking at my email and I see this note and I'm thinking, oh man, this is not good. I remember my mother, you know, nothing good is going to happen after midnight. You know, <laughs> w- what the heck was Billy doing when he sent this email? But as I took a look at it, um, Billy was exhorting us to reconsider uh, something pretty significant we were doing. And, you know, if you've seen that movie, Jerry Maguire, it could have been, you know, that Jerry Maguire moment. Um, And instead, you know, based on the culture we tried to create, you should be able to send those emails, right? And so Billy exhorted us. He said, uh, imagine this early 20 something person, first job, you know, not making a lot of money said, listen, management team, 
if you're willing to read this book, I'll buy it for you. <laughs> and because uh, I because I think we could benefit from it. And well, as it turned out, he had a great point. You know, we had in our fast growth had not been looking as closely as at lead measures as we should have. And we're really focused on lag measures. You know, we were we were doubling in size every 15 months and we wanted to keep that trajectory growing. Um, but again, we had we had been taking our eye off the ball of lead measures. So that's a long way of saying that there's a way to do it. But a lot of times it's not simply what you say. It's the credibility that you've built up based on the work you've done in the past. Uh, and then once you, you know, hopefully have a little little bit of credibility, um, you can express that. And, you know, I would, I would recommend people be data driven to the best of their ability. And um, the rest is, is history. Interesting. So, but how did you guys make Billy and other people at your company feel like they have that voice and can send that email? Because we've all been to conferences or on whatever, where it's like, or like those things that get posted to like social media platforms. I always, sometimes I always feel that like the people that really need to see that post will never see it. So like, how did you guys make that culture where he felt like that he could send that email? Cause that's, it's intimidating for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, the best companies invest in, uh, programs, processes, policies that help fe uh, people feel seen and allow people to be known, uh, celebrated, challenged, and encouraged. You know, so there's table stake stuff. You obviously have to pay well, right? But when you hear someone say they allow people to be known, you know, a lot of people scratch their head like, what do you mean by that, Patrick? Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the uh, things we started at a, at a pretty young age was uh, we called them breakthrough goals. And we worked with a uh, consultant and they, they broke all the new employees up into, into groups of, let's say, 12. And there was a graduation process of kind of learning strengths and disc profile and some other things that um, we've changed up since. But they, they became a team, they became a group, uh, and then they had a breakthrough goal. And the breakthrough goal was meant to be 12 months in the future. And it was essentially, hey, listen, based on what you've just learned about yourself, um, what is this thing you're going to do 12 months from now? And, you know, sometimes they were uh, business. Sometimes they were in a particular product line. A lot of times they were personal. And the, the C-suite was there to hear the breakthrough goals. So imagine, you know, you're a new employee and you're reading, sometimes your hands are trembling about this breakthrough goal and you're sitting there with the CEO and the CFO and the CTO uh, and on. And they're hearing kind of your hopes and your dreams about your future. They're known. And so when we see them, when we're making coffee or we're on a, a Zoom call, we know them in a slightly different way. And, and that's really a microcosm. Um, Kevin, we do, we do our own version of TED Talks uh, but it's it's really in how we run meetings and just how we are as a community. And I think it was that, you know, fertile ground, so to speak, that allowed a, um, a first year person like like Billy to speak up. Interesting. No, I, I think that's that's really awesome. So then you guys have successfully implemented this. How do you or what advice do you give to companies that haven't been doing this? 
that have maybe thought about it or haven't thought about it until you just mention it or until they, you know, um, and read the book, like how, what advice do you give them to actually implement it into their own companies, especially if they feel like their employees would never say that to them? Yeah. Well, the, the first bit of advice is to start, right? There's so many sure. things you can do and, and there are, you know, companies that have, that are really evolved and are doing some amazing, amazing things. Um, and, and chances are that you're doing one or two things really well in the in the business organization uh, or institution that that you're running or you're you're a manager in. Um, so so it's build on that for sure. But you got to make sure you really do have the basics in line. You know you need to be paying people fairly. Um, you have to be giving people challenges. You know if you're if you're paying people well but they're not challenged, it's just not going to work out. Um, once they're challenged, you need to celebrate them. And celebrate them in ways that are meaningful to them. You know, in in some uh, cultures, you know, a, an award trip is ten times more powerful than a three thousand dollar bonus, right? I mean, it's just a different kind of reward. So finding what resonates um, with people to be celebrated matters, um, and then from there you can kind of go to the you know the higher levels of being known. And you know, we used to do open mic nights. And we would rent out uh, the basement of a, of a local uh, wine bar. And it turns out that 30% of our employees are musicians, right? Well, if you're a musician and you don't play music during the day, that's a pretty big part of your life that should be shared with other people. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'll stop there, but there's probably 15 other things you could you could start doing. Interesting. No, I, I think that's actually really quite fascinating, right? And then... Also, just obviously being able open to taking that feedback because I remember like I had an old boss years ago. I can't even remember if they went for the idea or not, but like I, I basically pitched something to them and they were just like, you know what? Like it's a good idea. Like let us put some thought and some time and research into it and then we'll get back to you. And it's like you don't you well, obviously you want them to say like, yes, let's go ahead. And I can't remember which side they picked, but the fact that they were just like you know what, we'll get back to you and we're going to put some time and thought into this. It's almost like the fact that they've just been heard and considered, whether that actually gets happens or not. Like, If you give somebody a reason saying like, look, we reviewed this idea, it can't happen because of like this, this, and this, or it can happen because of this, this, and this, I think like people just want, or, or what's your thoughts around that, I guess? Like people just want to be at least acknowledge that they there was some thought put into it, even if they're told no. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to the the first part I, I mentioned, which is they want to feel seen and heard. And so part of you know feeling seen and, and heard is having a reaction, you know, and doing something about it. And and that's that's credibility, you know. So having systems in your organization, regardless of size, that allow people to share, that in fact invite them to share uh, is important. And, you know, we do that in product uh, management today. I mean, it's it's frequent that we ask our customers what we think of features or what we think of this new idea or direction. Uh, but sometimes uh, companies forget to ask, you know, the, the most important constituent there, and it's the people who work there. Interesting. No, I 100% agree. And it actually leads me into my next question for you is, so you figure out this problem, whether it's internal or you're going to go start your own company. And let's say you get version one up and running. How do you 
decide which direction to go next? Because you said you ask your customers, but obviously if you ask your customers, you could probably chase your tail endlessly and build a ton of features or things like that. How do you decide where to go for version 1.5 or two or, or, you know, beyond that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I've found that it tends to be one of iteration. Uh, it's less of let's take a dramatic, um, you know, move in a direction no one's done before. There are certainly some organizations that do that. And, you know, the obvious examples would be Tesla and Apple and in the past, but you know, that is not, not the way I've done it. And, and it's not the way I've seen a lot of other organizations do it. So it's about making uh, a series of these little bets, as Peter Sims would say, and extrapolating from there, um, doing A-B testing and and making some some incremental moves. Occasionally, they need to be larger than incremental, but I think that's the, that's the best path. No, I 100% I agree with you. And I think it's easier to correct by kind of pushing new minor features, I don't know, like every two weeks or every month or whatever, instead of like waiting six months because you spent all that time, right? It's it's better to throw away two weeks of work than six months of work and, and kind of just reiterating on that. But then once you roll out, um, you know, you've been at this for a while, you're maybe on a couple of versions, how do you decide on maybe where to place some of those bigger bets to potentially really grow the company or move into an, another like adjacent vertical? Or what's your thoughts or advice around that? Well, it really depends on the kind of organization you have and how patient your capital is. And so, you know, for the, the vast majority of us that work in uh, either you know, startups or organizations that, that we founded or venture capital-backed businesses, private equity-owned companies. Um, it's, it's just a question of how can we balance the good for the world with the good for the team and the, and the good for the shareholders? Uh, and if you're in a, a public company, sometimes that has a much faster uh, cycle and a, and a shorter duration, so to speak. Um, but I think it's balancing that, right? I mean, if you've got a great purpose, you know, and let's, we'll use um, one of our software systems as an example. I mean, if you really are setting out to reunite caregivers with their calling, that means getting rid of all of the garbage they spend their time on. That means getting rid of every nuisance, uh, getting them out of the chain of uh, prescriptions and figuring out scheduling problems with patients. And it's getting them directly with the patients. Uh, having them click fewer times, having them deal with less administrivia. And so, you know, you, you could kind of rank those. How do we how do we deliver on what our great promise is? And how do we make sure that all of those great ideas actually are valuable and something that people are willing to pay for? Uh, so in a for-profit entity, I think that's the, that's the rubric. Interesting. So what advice do you give other people, because I feel like as an entrepreneur, you're basically always trying to reinvent yourself. And almost in some ways, you're almost trying to constantly put yourself out of business because you're trying to be at the forefront of certain things, some of the time, at least like, how do you, or like, what advice do you give people? Because it's such an unknown and it can be so scary, even for people that have been doing it for a long period of time. I think we still have the same insecurities 
that somebody that's like just starting out has, at least I know I've done it or I still do. And I've been doing it for a co- over a couple decades now. Yeah. One of the people that we interviewed for the book and, and did some research with was Paula Ferris. And Paula has this uh, question she's learned to ask herself um, as, uh, as she's kind of moved through her career. And, you know, for a long time, she was paralyzed with the, the question of what could go wrong. And what, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen here? And, and for a while, she just applied the lens of asking, what's the best thing that can happen here? And, you know, in my experience, Kevin, so many people are risk averse and so many people are just looking at incremental growth and they just want to make sure that they get a good job review. And they're not asking that question. What's the best thing that could happen if we do this, if I make that decision. Now, that's not a question to necessarily govern your life by, but it's a really healthy exercise that most people don't do. No, I I 100% agree with you. And I think that you need to switch to that mindset. But I also want to touch on the like, what's the worst that can happen? And I get that this doesn't apply. What I'm about to say applies to every industry. But in a lot of cases, the worst thing that happens is you lose some sometimes maybe some of your own money or like somebody else's money. And I'm not saying that's good. It's just like in a lot of cases, starting a business, especially if you do it on the side, you might just lose some time and money. And like most of the time, like nobody gets seriously hurt, like, right. And so I think sometimes something that seems so negative when you actually objectively look at it. You can turn some of those stuff like, well, what's the worst that happens if I lose a few hundred hours or a few thousand hours, right? Like in some cases, you can turn some of those negatives why you wouldn't start into a motivating factor. Do you agree with that or what's your thoughts around that? Completely agree. And, you know, it's oftentimes there's so many examples in history of where, you know, the business that people thought they were starting is not the business that ultimately was successful. And so if you reverse engineer that thought, what we're really saying is that we're, we're making a series of, you know, estimates and calculated bets, and we're ultimately going to get to a plateau of learning. And, and then to break through that plateau, we've got to try new things. And, and typically it's, you know, it's those, those things we've done wrong that, uh, help us learn and, and get better. And so to the extent you can afford to do that, have some time for that. I think it's the best way to live. No, I agree with you. I think I always keep going back to this quote and I wish I remember who said it and it, cause it sounds so stupid and it always resonated with me. It's like anybody that's ever done anything they wanted to do in life just decided to go for it one day. Like they just picked a day and just started. It doesn't matter how big or small you start. It's just, they started. And that that's always kind of stuck with me. It's so true. Journey of a, a thousand miles, you know, starts with a single step. Yeah, it's just wild, right? So I'm curious, you've obviously scaled a huge or a company that started really small is now a pretty large company with a ton of employees. You're writing this, you wrote this book called Refounder. You've been a mentor and a board member and you've seen things come and go and kind of probably uh, come back again. What advice or or something, is there something that you see all the time that people are doing that you would maybe say, like, keep doing that? Or on the flip side of that, like, I'd really wish people would stop doing that. Hmm. Yeah, I've got examples of both. So, 
you know, over the years, I've I've worked with a, an incredible group of people who they tend to have uh, this common denominator of um, humility. They lack a level of cynicism, you know, that's pretty popular. And there's really an earnestness about them. And so, you know, I think if you can combine one or two or all three of those things, you're going to be pretty successful. Um, so that that's something I would encourage people to adopt. You know, if, if you're overly cynical, if you're overly sarcastic, you know, if you're not earnest, it's, you know, it's hard to take you seriously. And it's, it's difficult in a professional environment to, uh, to succeed. Now, sometimes that's what you need. You need a critical eye. Um, but cynicism and sarcasm are, are different than just having a critical eye. So I'd say those are things to adopt. Um, things to to stop doing would be, you know, overpromising. You know, there's just there's just not a lot of need for overpromising. Um, you know, I see this all the time with uh, investor decks. I see it all the time with forecasts, um, and it's just unnecessary. If you have a good idea. Uh, it should stand on its own merits and, you know, you should be able to get behind it with confidence. I, I think that's actually really good advice. So I want to kind of, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but I want you to give kind of a quick overview of the book and, and what exactly, I know we've covered a bunch of it today, but I like, who's it exactly for? And maybe just give us kind of a, a quick teaser to close out the show, what the book's about again, and, and kind of who it's for. Absolutely. Yeah, so the book is for CEOs that know they need to make a change in their business. Um, and it's really a playbook on how to do that. You know, the, the next group that I think will find it really useful, broadly entrepreneurs, but I'm, I'm including them in the CEO definition, are um, managers and people who they've got a product line, they run a sales team and there's a problem and, and they know it. And whether it's a cultural problem or you know some some issue with a, with a product or service and they know real change needs to be made, uh, it's for them. And I, I think the final category are these you know culture heroes, you know folks who are in a business institution, not for profit, that have a you know they think of it as a higher calling and they're looking for ways to implement a better culture in their business so those those tend to be the folks that are you know most intrigued and and staying late to talk to me after i i speak somewhere um, those are really the 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 three groups that are that are most intrigued i've also had a lot of good feedback from college students because they're looking for you know, a, a blueprint of what an employer should be and how they should form a career, like what what matters in that. Um, and, you know, in the book, I tell my story and our story of how Chris and I and a group of other um, hardworking refounders took something that was broken and, and made it better. And so there's a lot of practical steps of um, literally like, what did you, what did you do when you hired and how did you scale to this level? And what was it like when you brought on a private equity firm. So there's there's practical steps about culture building and, and growth oriented businesses. And then, you know, we, we take a look at some of the areas in the world that need refounders. And we try to shine a little bit of light on some of these areas, large areas in education and, and medicine and two or three others that, that we think are important. Uh, and then finally, we give you an example, like this is what it looks like to be a refounder in those areas. 
and we interview those folks, we research with them, uh, we share some of their insights as well. No, I, I think that's really great. I'm, I'm curious, just as we one more thing, how do you think the working world will be similar or different once we're kind of out of this pandemic? Do you think it's going to be a kind of a hybrid? Some people are going to be working from home. Some people are going to be in the office, a bit of both. What are your thoughts and predictions around that? I'm old enough to have seen, you know, the, the pendulum of change a few times. Um, and so I think we're, we're really embarking on the pendulum moving pretty far and working from anywhere, uh, which we support and think is a great idea. So work from anywhere is a new reality, and it's going to really open up uh, opportunities for talented people to live anywhere they want and be able to be part of an organization and share and create difference. So I think that is absolutely the, the way it's going, and it, and it should be going as well. I agree with you. Do you think there's going to be a problem, though, with the employers that um, are pushing everybody to be back in the office to find good talent? Because I think good talent's going to be able to be really picky with their situation, whether they want to be in the office, a bit of work from home or the office or across the country. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I, mean, I think there's some organizations that it really, really helps to be in a team environment and to be together uh, with sure. some cadence and frequency. And then I think there's other roles um, that just don't don't require that. And I think forever they will be changed. No, I 100% agree with you. But uh, we're kind of out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, NetHealth, and uh, the book Refounder? Sounds great. Yeah. Check out more at refounder.com. Feel free to follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter, both with Patrick Coletti. Perfect, Patrick. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Excellent. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community. Sign up for our newsletter or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.